0: Jerry, Jeff, take your copy of God's Word this morning and go with me to the Old Testament book of Daniel, Daniel chapter 1. I want to begin a series this morning uh, doing some studies through the book of Daniel. Uh, as Jeff said, he checks the calendar for what songs we've sang. Well, I kind of do the same thing with studies and through the book I look back and see when the last time was we did a particular study. And it's been quite a while since we were in the book of Daniel, and so I wanted to spend some time there uh, this morning as we think about the book of Daniel and really today's message is an introduction to this fabulous Old Testament book as Old Testament books go about prophecy Daniel is probably right up there at the pinnacle of those prophetic books it's uh its value in understanding prophecy cannot be uh, overstated it really has two sections and if you're familiar with the book you will recognize these right away The first six chapters are predominantly historical. Now there's prophecy mixed in there, but it is history about the life of a man named Daniel who was captured and taken back to Babylon. The last six chapters, or 12 chapters, the last six chapters are really focused on prophecy. God revealing to Daniel future events uh, that are going to transpire. And even at one time, an angel coming and talking to him and answering his prayer. Uh, Daniel a fantastic book to study and really a, a man who, uh, who is an example of an Old Testament saint who was saved and, and served the Lord in very uh, difficult circumstances now again as prophecy goes this book has been referred to as the skeletal framework upon which really the rest of prophecy hangs if you ever spend time studying the book of Revelation you really need to understand Daniel before you study Revelation because Daniel lays out the history and really the future uh, from Daniel's perspective was all future from our perspective. Some of it is history and we're gonna talk about that in a moment with some still left to be fulfilled. If you understand the prophecy in the book of Daniel, then when you read the book of Revelation, it makes much more sense and and fits together uh, much better uh, in our understanding. Uh, It reminds us here also in studying the Old Testament and the New Testament, that no one book of the Bible, no one chapter, no one verse, no one passage stands on its own. In other words, we need to study the Bible in its totality and understand all that God uh, has told us and revealed to us in the book. Now, the first part this morning, before we really get uh, into the passages, we're gonna have a bit of a, of a history lesson. And I hope you're okay with that because I like history. So, uh, so. Listen very carefully. If I lose you, raise your hand. I'm just kidding. There'll be a test next week, so take notes. No, it won't be a test. But I want you to. What I want to try to do is is sometimes when you read an Old Testament book, and I know when I was learning the Bible, when I got saved and I was reading the Bible, and I would read about these things in the Old Testament, I had no context to put them in. I couldn't I couldn't figure out in my mind. Well, I know these things happened because God said they happened, but where you know where did it? Ha- when did it happen? What happened? Who was involved in this? So I wanna try to help you have some context for the book of Daniel. Now you'll remember in generality, David, God called David to be the king of Israel around 1000 BC. Now in our minds, you know, we're in in 2021, so 2000 years of the church age and a thousand years before Jesus came, that's a long time, okay? But but think of it in that terms, a thousand years before Jesus came, David becomes king of Israel Israel uh, God leads them to the pinnacle of their of their kingdom uh, that they've ever had on earth. Uh, there was David and Solomon, two greatest kings uh, of Israel historically. But when Solomon died, the kingdom had a civil war and they split. And the northern part of Israel became Israel with 10 tribes there, and in the south was Judah and Benjamin, most of Benjamin. And so from about 900 years before christ came you had the nation split you had israel in the north ten tribes and you had two in the south well the northern ten tribes lost their minds okay they religiously they uh, went right into idolatry began to worship baal bent, built these temples and, and one of the reasons they did that is the kings in the north didn't want the nation to reunite and so they figured the best way to do that is not have people travel to jerusalem to worship so they built all these temples They worshiped Baal and God, uh, you know what the Bible says about that. God had a covenant with Israel and God said, if you do that, I'm gonna chasten you and I'm gonna judge you. Well, Judah had more godly kings than the kings in the north. In 722 BC, so from about 900, 200 years, 722 BC, God raised up the Assyrian nation. So if you know anything about history, the Assyrians in that part of the world in the eighth century BC became a very dominant Uh, economic and military force. Well, God used the Assyrians to chasten the Northern 10 tribes because of their idolatry and their sin. And God sent them and in 722 BC, the Northern tribes were carried away. The, The Assyrians swooped in, defeated them, carried them away. So from 722 BC, all that's left of Israel is Judah in Jerusalem and large part of Benjamin, tribe of Benjamin. So two tribes left in the South, that's it. Well. The South began to do the same thing the North did, worshiping idols and getting away from God. And the prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, those guys that you read in the Old Testament, they came to the South and they said, hey, did you not see just what happened to the, to the 10 in the North? God's not happy with you, so you need to repent and get right. Well, they did it, okay? And so God raised up then the Babylonian empire. Now that's where Daniel picks up. And so that's the general idea now, let me tell you where the first chapter, verses 1 and 2, begin in the book of Daniel. The Assyrians had destroyed the, north, the northern ten tribes in 722 B.C. About 612 B.C., about 100 years later, a little over 100 years, the Babylonians had come to power. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar was the guy's name, and he had a son named Nebuchadnezzar. You know him from the book of Daniel, okay? Well, Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonian army, primarily led by his son, Nebuchadnezzar, who was a great military strategist, they conquered Nineveh. They destroyed the Assyrians, which was a magnificent feat in itself. They went, they destroyed Nineveh, and basically conquered the Assyrians, where well, the Assyrians weren't giving up that easy. They regrouped, and so in 610 BC, in a place called Haran, they had another battle. The Babylonians, again, put a hurting on them, wiped them out. Well, the last remnant of the Assyrians tried to make an alliance with the Egyptians, and they did. And a guy named Nico II was Pharaoh of Egypt. And so the rest of the Assyrians made an alliance with Egypt and said, we really have to stop the Babylonians because they're destroying everybody. And so Pharaoh Nico II agreed with the rest of the Assyrians and said, we will unite our forces and we'll go fight uh, the Babylonians. Well, when you get to 2 Kings chapter 20, I think it is, you'll find there's a king named Josiah who's king of Judah in Jerusalem. He decides that he's gonna fight with the Babylonians and fight against the Egyptians and the Assyrians. Well, before he does that, he goes out to fight just the Egyptians and he loses and he gets killed. So the good King Josiah loses his life because he goes out and fights against the Egyptians. And by the way, that was not what God wanted him to do. He did what he wasn't supposed to do and he died. So then, the Egyptians and the Assyrians get together and they meet the Babylonians at a place called Kirkhamish, uh 605 BC. Well, the Babylonians rout them. They destroy, the, they destroy the Egyptian army, send him back to Egypt, whipped. They kill the rest of the Assyrian empire, it is no more. And so now in 605 BC, there's only one big dog on the block and that's Nebuchadnezzar and his army and the Babylonian army. So in 605, right after he defeats the Egyptians, his dad, Nebuchadnezzar, dies. And so Nebuchadnezzar goes back to Babylon, 800 miles from around Jerusalem, give or take a few miles. He goes back to to Babylon, receives the crown, becomes the sole king of the Babylonian empire, and then comes back to Jerusalem. Well, he shows up at Jerusalem and lays siege to Jerusalem for the first time in 605 B.C., The prophet Jeremiah had already told, and Isaiah by the way, had already told the kings in Judah, the Babylonians are coming and it's God's chastening on you, it's God's judgment for your sin. And they recommended to them, don't fight the Babylonians because you'll lose. So when they show up, when the Babylonians show up, the city capitulates, surrenders, and thus you have the first captivity, if you will, the first deportation. Verse one of Daniel chapter one, is 605 BC, and Babylonians have showed up, Nebuchadnezzar is there to take the city. Everybody follow all that? Okay, if you need clip notes, I'll give them to you later. But that's what happened. And that's where verse one begins. So look at verse one of Daniel chapter one. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. Now see, all that stuff I just told you makes that make sense, doesn't it? Okay, if you didn't know all that stuff, you'd be thinking, who's the third year of who, okay? Jehoiakim was the oldest son of Josiah. Following it, Josiah got killed fighting the Egyptians, so his oldest son is now the king. Nebuchadnezzar shows up in 605 BC, surrounds the city, lays siege to it, and because Jehoiakim knew that God was chastening them, he didn't fight, well, I mean, think about it for a minute. If you're the king, uh, you're now the king of Jerusalem, right? and the king of Judah, your dad just got killed fighting the Egyptians, Nebuchadnezzar just wiped out the Egyptians and wiped out the rest of the Assyrians and then he shows up and besieges your city, you're probably surrendering too, right? You're probably going, okay, had enough of that. So he surrenders and becomes a vassal state of the Babylonian empire, which then leads us to verse two where things begin to happen. Look at verse two. Now notice what it says, and the Lord gave Jehoiakim king of Judah into his hand with some of the articles of the house of God which he carried into the land of Shinar and the house of his gods. And he brought their articles into the treasure house of his God. The first thing I want you to notice in verse two is that this whole thing is the doing of God. God's doing it. In other words, it says God gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah into the hand of Nebuchadnezzar, into the hand of the Babylonians. Why did God give his people to be defeated by a foreign pagan nation? There are prophets who wanted to know that, okay? God, why would you use a wicked pagan nation who worships Marduk to have them come and conquer your people to defame your temple? God, why would you use such wicked people to do such a thing to your people? And of course, when you read the Bible, the answer is all of these nations are instruments in the hand of God. As a sovereign God, he's moving the pieces around on the table, if you will. He moves the Assyrians to chasten the north. And then he brings the Babylonians to destroy the Assyrians who were wicked. And so God's judgment fell on them through the, through the hand of the Babylonians. And then God brings the Babylonians against his own people. Why? To chasten them. Mark this down. Israel had a terrible problem with idolatry until 605 B.C. And by the time the captivity is over 70 years later, Israel's never had another problem with idolatry, okay? God cured that problem because they went into captivity. But the answer is God in his sovereignty moved world events, moved kings, moved nations to bring about what he wanted done. Now, what application can we make to that for our day? Well, I don't know about you, but when I read the news and I look at what's going on in the world, I think people have lost their ever-loving minds. I mean you, you look around you go what in what in what universe does some of this stuff make sense? What people are saying and what they're doing. But you know what encourages me? The same sovereign God who was moving the Assyrian nation and moving the Babylonians and moving nations around. And by the way, let me give you a little a little a little foretaste of what we're gonna find in the book of Daniel. Daniel is gonna prophesy about the Assyrians the Babylonians, the Medo-Persians, the Greeks and the Romans before they ever get here. Why? Because God is gonna use all of those nations to bring about his purposes and his plans. And so today, when I look at the world, I'm encouraged because the same God who was in control of these events is in control of the world today. God has a plan, by the way. And when you read the Bible, you figure out what it is. You don't have to figure out what it is, God tells us. God has a plan. God's moving moving the world, moving human history toward the culmination that he's already sovereignly designed. The next thing to happen, prophetically, in case you're wondering, the next thing to happen is the rapture of the church. That's the next thing. There is nothing else that remains to be done. Nothing else has to be fulfilled. Jesus could come at any time. God's plan is to rapture the church, take us out of here. The tribulation is going to come, which will again be God's direct judgment on a wicked and perverse world and those who reject them. And at the end of the tribulation, Jesus will return in all his power and glory and majesty. And he'll set up his kingdom on this world for a thousand years. And Jesus will sit on the throne in Jerusalem and restore Israel to its place as his people. And he'll rule over the world for a thousand years. That's God's plan. Here's the good news. Nothing anybody can do today can stop God's plan from happening. Not a nation, not a king, not a president, not a dictator, nobody, can stop what God's gonna do. No more than these people can stop what God did among these nations. So, when you, when you read the news today, I was telling Sharon in the car yesterday, I was telling her stuff, I was reading the news, and, and we both agreed, I gotta stop reading the news. I mean, I, you know, because the more I tell her about it, the louder I get, and the more agitated I get, and uh, so I have, you know, probably be better for my blood pressure if I, don't, if I don't read that stuff. But God sovereignly moved the Assyrians and the Babylonians <clears throat> to do, Uh, what they did in the life of Israel for his purposes. Now, notice another thing it says in verse two. There are several things here that I want to point out to you. The second thing is this. He took some of the articles of the house of God. Now, what are those? The articles of the house of God. Well, you will remember from reading the Old Testament, as I'm sure you all have, that when God gave them the tabernacle and and Solomon built the temple and they actually had the temple, there were instruments in there made out of gold and silver and bronze and they were valuable and they were sanctified and they were set apart for the purpose of God. And over the years of King David and Solomon, uh, particularly Solomon, because under Solomon's reign, Israel, there was no one greater, no, no greater nation economically, militarily. And Solomon collected uh, literally a fortune uh, through his trade and through his industry. And so Israel, particularly in Jerusalem, was very wealthy. Their, their storehouses were full of precious metals and riches. In fact, it, Hezekiah, let me just take you back for a minute to 2 Kings chapter 20. You remember a guy named Hezekiah? Well, Hezekiah got sick, right? And God spared him, added days to his life and, and, and healed him. And in response to that, in the early rise of the Babylonian empire, they sent, they sent some emissaries, uh, some um, representatives from Babylon to Jerusalem to to congratulate Hezekiah on recovering from his sickness and to kind of, I think they were on a dual role to kind of check things out and look at Jerusalem and see what was going on. And Hezekiah did something really foolish. Does anybody remember what he did? He's so full of pride about how uh, rich they are, he takes all the Babylonian representatives he says, come here, I want to show you all the stuff we have. And he takes them to the storeroom and he shows them all the riches and all the stuff Solomon had in the gold. See, Solomon used to make these shields out of gold and silver. And there's just storerooms of this stuff, just just riches untold in the temple and in the storerooms. And so Hezekiah takes him around and shows him all this stuff. And I can only imagine in my mind, some guy in the back, you know, with his cell phone out filming on that. <laughs> nah, I have a cell phone. but. You know, he's got his secret little scroll and he's, he's like, okay, third building to the right, you know, fourth room, full of stuff. You know, building to the left, northern corner, full of gold. And these guys are taking notes and they go back. And so when Nebuchadnezzar shows up and takes Jerusalem, he reaches in his pocket and goes, third building on the left, take the, take the wagon over there, get all that stuff, get all that stuff. In fact, Isaiah scolded Hezekiah. Let me read it to you, listen to this. 2 Kings chapter 20, verse 16. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, hear the word of the Lord. In other words, this is what God has to say about what you just did. Listen to this. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and what your fathers have accumulated until this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And they shall take away some of your sons who will descend from you, whom you will beget, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon." Boy, there's some prophecy. Isaiah says to Hezekiah, when you're dead and gone, all of this stuff's gonna go. And so in verse two of Daniel chapter one, what do we read? Nebuchadnezzar comes, 605 BC, lays siege to the city, and takes away all the riches of Jerusalem, takes them back. In fact, a little, a little, uh, a little taste of what's coming. Later in the book of Daniel, uh, one, of the, one of Nebuchadnezzar's great-grandsons is gonna throw a party and he's gonna, he's gonna get really prideful. He's gonna say, go to the storeroom and get some of those cups that we took from the Jews, those gold cups and those silver cups and bring them in here because we're gonna drink out of them. That's a major mistake. You know why? Those instruments were dedicated to God and they were in the temple and they were sacred. And he was going to blaspheme the name of God by using these things in a drunken party. And then the hand shows up and starts writing on the wall with the judgment of God. But same vessels, okay, same stuff that he's talking about here. So he gets all the stuff, he takes it back. Now he takes it back to his temple, all of those vessels back to the temple of Marduk, which was the principal pagan deity of the Babylonians. Now, what can we we learn from this? You say, well, that's some really cool history. Well, yeah, it's just history unless biblically we understand something spiritual about it. i give you a couple of things just to think about. Because of Israel's disobedience, because of their failure to do what God asked them to do, because of their sin, listen, because of their sin, the name of the true and living God among those nations was drugged through the mud. Because of their sin, all, all that they should have been in testimony to the pagan nations around them was lost. God's name was dragged through the mud, embarrassed. You know why if they took the stuff back to Marduk, to the, to the temple in, of the pagan deity in Babylon? Because it was an ancient way of saying, our God's bigger than your God because we just took all your stuff. And so this pagan deity that's not a deity at all, because of their sin now appears to be exalted above Jehovah God, above the real and true and living God, all because, listen, all because they failed to do what God asked them to do. What was Israel supposed to do? You're my people, I'm gonna be your God, you're gonna be my people, here's a covenant. If you serve me and obey me and worship me and, and keep my commands, I'll bless you like no nation's ever been blessed. You know, you'll have children, your cattle will have lots of cattle and nobody will bother you, I'll protect you. Well, no, they couldn't do that, right? because they got into sin, and because of that, God chastened them, and the testimony, their testimony was lost. They couldn't be a witness to the kings and the nations around them, and God's name gets drug through the mud. Boy, do we see a connection here? Do we see a connection? Is it any different today? What has God called us to do as his redeemed today? Same thing he told Israel to do. Be a light to a lost world. In fact, Jesus said this in Matthew 5:14. You are the light of the world. Let that sink in for a moment. Jesus said, you, as a redeemed child of God, are the light of the world, a city that's set on a hill that cannot be hidden. In other words, we're supposed to be the, 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 the proverbial metaphorical light shining into a lost, dark world with the truth of the gospel, that's our job. Jesus went on to say, nor do they light a lamp, and put it under a basket, but on a lampstand. And it gives light to all who are in the house. We're supposed to be that light that shines into a world of people who are lost and on their way to hell. And we have the gospel, we have the truth of God, and we're supposed to be sharing it. Jesus said in verse 16, let your lights who shine before men that what? They may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. So you see that our lifestyle is connected to our testimony. Now, we, now, the same thing happens today. If we choose to disobey God and live in sin, what happens to our testimony? It gets tarnished. And then because our testimony is tarnished, what happens to the name of our God? Same thing happened with Israel, it gets dragged through the mud. Is it not true? Isn't it amazing? Isn't it? It's, it's amazing can do all kinds of heinous things and it'll be a blip on the news oh you know man kills 15 people because he didn't get his cheeseburger the right way or whatever you know I mean it's it's the craziest stuff right but you let you let a man or woman who's had a testimony as a Christian and has done work for God you let them fail what happens it is it is front and center oh this man who was a preacher was, you know, did this thing and, it, and what does it do? It hurts the cause of Christ and it hurts the ministry of Jesus Christ and it, and, it, and it causes the world to drag the name of Jesus through the mud because the world looks at that and says, look what you did. And it never ceases to amaze. The lost world don't want anything to do with Jesus, but they sure know what we're supposed to be, don't they? I mean, they're lost and they don't care, but you let a Christian mess up and all of a sudden they know the Bible cold. Hey, I don't want Jesus, but I know what the Bible says and you ain't supposed to be doing that. Well, you happen to be right. I just happen to be forgiven and you ain't, okay? I mean, that really is what it comes down to, but the world doesn't understand that. And so we end up through our poor testimony having the name of Jesus drug through the mud. Listen, two things we need to remember that we learn right here about Israel, that What we do reflects on Jesus. My dad used to tell me when I got of age to drive and go out of the house by myself, he said, remember, whatever you do reflects on us as your mom and dad. I knew that was code for, I'll beat the daylights out of you if you do something crazy, okay? Back in the day, you could do that. But listen, same thing is true. The same thing is true about God. Whatever we do as Christians reflects on our Heavenly Father. Same thing with Israel. And listen, a good testimony opens doors. A poor testimony closes doors. Really, really difficult to witness to somebody that you just had a drunken rousing party with, okay? Really difficult. Now, you can't do it, but really tough when you're as drunk as he is trying to tell him about Jesus. Kind of loses its power, you think? But no, if we live the life, then we can say to him, hey, Let me me tell you who works in my life to make me different. Let me tell you about Jesus. Then you got something to talk about. So Israel had lost it. Last thing I wanna show you here real quick about about verse two. There's a phrase you find in the Bible called the times of the Gentiles. Anybody heard of that before? Time of the Gentiles. Now let me explain what that is very quickly. Up until 605 BC, Israel had been its own independent nation from the time God founded it, right? He, he called them out of Egypt, founded the nation. They were their own nation under David and, and uh, Solomon, and then all the kings that had split. But in 605 BC, Israel ceased to be an independent nation. Yes, they were still there in Jerusalem. Yes, they still had the city for a time because what happened in 586 BC, anybody remember? I'll give you a little preview. Israel, rebelled against Nebuchadnezzar three times. He came in 605, subdued them, came back about 597 because they were rebelling and not paying their taxes. Remember, they're a vassal state. You have to do what the king tells you. They said, we're not doing it anymore because we're an independent nation. Nebuchadnezzar showed up again with his army, 800 miles. Now let me just ask you this question. How happy do you think Nebuchadnezzar was every time they rebelled and he had to get his army together and go 800 miles? How much do you think that cost him? A lot. So he shows up in like 597 B.C., siege, puts a siege, sieges the city again. They surrender. He makes it painful for them, takes a bunch of them captive away. They revolt again in 587 B.C. He shows up the third time and he goes, this ain't happening no more. And he razed the city, burned it to the ground, killed almost everybody there. And Solomon's simple temple no more, destroyed it. Okay? So the time of the Gentiles is this. From 605 BC, the Bible predicted prophetically that there would be a time when Israel would be under Gentile dominion called the time of the Gentiles. Now it began in 605 BC and it won't end until Jesus sets up his kingdom at the end of the tribulation. Right now, Israel lives under the time of the Gentiles. You say, well, pastor, that's pretty heavy duty stuff. Who said that? Jesus. Let me read you the verse. Listen, Luke 20, verse 24. In Luke 20, verse 24, Jesus uh, is talking about when Jerusalem will be destroyed again by the Romans, which happened in A.D. 70. Yes. Thank you. A.D. 70. The Romans, Titus, showed up and destroyed Jerusalem again. Jesus foretold that in Luke 20, verse 24. Listen to this. And they shall fall by the edge of the sword and be led away captive into all nations. And Jerusalem will be trampled by Gentiles until the times of the Gentiles are fulfilled. In other words, Jesus verified that they were in the time of the Gentiles and it would continue to be trampled until that time is fulfilled, which will be when Jesus sets up his kingdom. Because when Jesus comes, sets up his kingdom in Jerusalem, they will be the nation that will lead the world again. Okay? So the time of the Gentiles began in 605 BC. Now here's why that's important. You say, oh, pastor, okay, big deal. No, this is why it's important. Listen. Daniel later in the book of Daniel, God's gonna tell Daniel about things that are gonna happen. And they're all connected at the time of the Gentiles, which is important to know it began in 605 because they're gonna be in captivity for 70 years. How do you know when the 70 years began? Because it's the time of the Gentiles. So it's an important date to know, okay? Now the last thing I wanna show you this morning before we close, the captives in Babylon. Look at verses three to seven very quickly and we won't spend nearly as much time in these verses as we did in the first two. Then the king instructed Aspenaz, the master of his eunuchs, now watch this, to bring some of the children of Israel and some of the king's descendants. Oh, what did Isaiah say to Hezekiah? And some of your children, some of your descendants are gonna be taken away. So here it is. And so he took some of the king's descendants and some of the nobles, verse four young men in whom there was no blemish, but good-looking, gifted in all wisdom, possessing knowledge and quick to understand, who had ability to serve in the king's palace, whom they might teach the language and literature of the Chaldees. And the king appointed for them a daily provision of the king's delicacies of the wine which he drank and three years of training for them so that they might, at the end of that time, they might serve before the king. Verse six, now from among those of the sons of Judah were Daniel, Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. To them, the chief of the eunuchs gave names. To Daniel, he called them Belteshazzar. To Hananiah, Shadrach. To Mishael, Meshach, and Azariah, Abednego. Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. You know the story, the fire furnace. That's them, those three guys, okay? They're friends of Daniel. Let me close with some very quick observations because we're about out of time. I want want you to think about something about Daniel being taken captive. When Daniel was taken captive back to Babylon, he was probably between 15 and 18 years old. Consider that for just a minute. When Daniel left there, it was a life-altering event. Life-altering event. In fact, think about it. Daniel would never again see Jerusalem in his mortal life. He would spend the rest of his life in Babylon in captivity and die there. He would never see the temple again when he left that time on captivity, 800 miles back to Babylon, he never came back again. He left, never saw his family again. If his mom and dad were still alive, never saw them again. Any brothers or sisters, never saw them again. His life was altered forever in one event in 605 BC when he was taken back. Think about it, his personal life was altered. Any any plans that Daniel had for his life Anything that he looked in the future and thought as a young man, I'm going to get married, have a wife. We're going to raise our kids here in Jerusalem. We're going to worship in the temple. I'm going to teach my kids about God. We're going to do all these things gone out the window. His religious life would never be the same again. He worshiped at the temple. He would never see that temple again. And in 586, it would be destroyed. So his religious life was forever changed. He's going to be taken from Jerusalem forcefully without a choice back to a pagan place where they worship pagan deities. And that's where he's gotta live without any religious support of any kind. No church relationship, no fellowship in Jerusalem, nothing, no sacrifices, which for a Jew were, were, were very important. Could never again offer sacrifice, could do none of those things. His life plans altered forever. I wanna show you three things that we're gonna close. Daniel's response to this situation is incredibly instructive for us today. And I want you to listen very quickly and carefully as we close. Number one, Daniel never blamed God. That's amazing, isn't it? I mean, think about a 15 to 18 year old and his life as he knew it is no more. And God's the cause of it. God sent him. God led this to happen. Daniel never blamed God for these things that happened in his life, these circumstances that from his human perspective, now put yourself in his shoes for just a moment. He doesn't know what we know because he has not written the book of Daniel yet. He doesn't know what's gonna happen. He only knows what the prophet said. He probably understood that the Babylonians were coming, but how it would affect him, he never knew. And now his life will never be the same again but he didn't blame God for it. You know why? Because he knew that whatever circumstances God allowed in his life, God was still in control. What a lesson for us today. Because you would agree that less than, less than desirable circumstances enter our lives all the time and we don't like it. I don't like it. Now you might be spiritual enough that you just love it and you go, oh, well, God's in control and I'm just happy all the time. I'm not. I have to say to God, God, this is painful and uncomfortable, but at the end of the day, what do we say to God? You're still God. And that's what Daniel was able to do. He lost everything that he thought was valuable in life. May we have the same attitude, as hard as it is. May we say to God, God, I don't understand. And God, I don't know, but I know you, and I know you never make a mistake, and I know you love me, and so God, I'm gonna trust you. And that's what Daniel did. Secondly, not only did Daniel not blame God, but he maintained his testimony, which is incredible. Think about this. A young man, 15, 18 years old, taken 800 miles from his home to a pagan city, full of everything a young man would think might be fun. He gets there and guess what? No compromise. He could have easily said, you know what? I'm 800 miles away from Jerusalem. I don't know anybody here except the guys I'm locked up with. They don't know me. They don't worship Jehovah God. So why should I care? You know why Daniel cared? Because God's real. And God, listen to me, God is still God no matter where you're at. Didn't matter if he was in Jerusalem or in Babylon, God's still God. And so Daniel never compromised his life, never compromised his testimony for God. And we'll see that next week. Because in verse eight, that's that great verse. You know what Daniel said? Daniel purposed in his heart that he would not defile himself with the king's food. Well, that's a big deal. We'll talk about it next week. That's a life or death decision. That's a, I'm not defending, I'm not, def- not going to defile myself even if it costs me my life decision. Okay? So he didn't, forfeit his testimony, and then finally, finally, Daniel said, you know what? God's will is more important than my will. So whatever God has designed for my life is more important than what I think I ought to do. Now, let me tell you the result of that attitude. God used Daniel in the worst possible conceivable situation, home destroyed, taken captive, living in a pagan land, And when he went to school for three years, guess what they tried to do? They tried to train those boys to forget everything they ever knew and to be Chaldean. But you know what Daniel said? He said, I'll be a Chaldean, all right, I'll be a Jewish Chaldean. And I'll be a a God-worshipping Chaldean. And I can serve God here because he was an A student in school. I, I, I don't have time. I think if I would have been captive and brought and go to school. I'm not sure I'd have been an A student. What about you? Go to school mad every day. You know, I don't want to be here. I don't want to learn your silly language. I don't want to, you know, I mean, you could have had an attitude, right? Not him. God's got me here. So I'm going to do the best I can and I'm going to serve God. And God honored that because God ended up using Daniel to win the heart of a pagan king. And I think Nebuchadnezzar got saved before he died. Daniel was the man God used to do that. Why? Because he didn't blame God, because he maintained his testimony, and he confessed that God's will for his life was more important than his will for his life. Powerful lessons for us today, isn't it? Let me close with this. You say, boy, that's a powerful God that would do that kind of stuff. Yeah, he's still in control today. Amen. Amen. Maybe you're here today or you're watching online and you don't know this God like Daniel knew him. Daniel's a saved man. He's an Old Testament saint. That same God loves you today and he wants to save you. You see, we're all sinners. We all have sin and we all need a savior. That God who moves nations and is in control of the world loves you individually. He knows your name and he wants to save you. If you've never been saved by faith in Jesus, today's the day. Where you sit, where you're sitting watching online, you can confess your sin, ask God to save you, and he'll forgive your sin and give you eternal life. He'll grant you life with him. Can I I say kindly, you don't want any other kind of life than that. The world will offer you all kinds of life here that's full of sin and pleasure for a season. God will give you life that really matters. Would you pray and receive him today? Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for what you teach us in this book. Help us as we study it. Uh, Bless us, God, to have the same attitude, to have the same, uh, Lord, the same surrender, the same confession that we find in this man, Daniel. Lord Jesus, save that one who might be lost today. Lord, may they pray right now. God, I'm sorry for my sin. Lord, I know I'm a sinner. And I ask you, Jesus, to forgive me and save me today. In your holy name we pray, amen. A stand as we sing. If I can pray with you or help you, you come, I'll be right down front. We're going to begin a series tonight on creation, uh, starting in Genesis. Um, that's better than trick or treat. You don't come tonight. If you have kids, we gave your kids enough candy a week ago to last them till next year. So they did not need no more candy. So I hope you can come back and be with us tonight. Let's pray. Thank you, Father, for this morning and the time together. Uh, Lord, bless us through the day. Bless the study of your word. May we take it to heart, Lord, and live it out. I pray it in Jesus name. Amen. Uh mm-hmm.